Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to the Mongol Empire podcast. This is a rather delayed episode 4.2 of the new miniseries Consolidation, which looks at the events taking place between 1206 and the Mongol invasion of Jin, which started in 1211. There have been a few things which have got in the way of producing this podcast in the last few months, the primary one last month being the fact that my microphone broke, and the spare one I had was just absolute pants. That has been resolved, and fingers crossed, we'll be back to a monthly release. So, last time out, I provided a cure for insomnia, presenting an entirely theory-based episode focusing on the legal institution known as the Curiltai. Working on the basis that Temujin's actions were driven by a motivation to become the Universal Khan, the Kyultai was a necessary requirement to confirm him as the successor to the title he had taken from Togril Onkan. You will undoubtedly be pleased to hear that we will be coming back to the Kyultai after the death of Chinggis Khan, because we do need to see how it is utilised by his successors. For today's episode though, we will look at what actually took place in this Kyrultai. We will look at the reforms made by Temujin to his army and Mongol society in general, and the problems he encountered whilst he was making them. Of course, we should also now refer to Temujin as Chinggis Khan, and having already twice given you the secret history's account of the coronation, today we'll turn to Rashid al-Din, who does provide very marginally more detail. Quote, At the beginning of spring, Genghis Khan ordered a nine-footed white standard set up, and he held a great Kyrultai with a magnificent assemblage. At that Kyrultai, the title of Genghis or Chinggis Khan was given him, and he mounted the Khan's throne under good auspices. The giver of the title was Mungalig Echiga's son, Kokachu, who was called Teb Tengri. End quote. As Rashid states, the man who crowned Temujin was Teb Tengri, a son of the secret history's Father Mungalig. Father Mungalig was an influential man in his own right. His wisdom and observations had helped Temujin on multiple occasions, and he was married to Temujin's mother, Hogalun. However, the influence wielded by Teb Tengri was on a completely different level. He was considered to be one of the greatest and most powerful shamans in the Mongol nation, and had continuously predicted that Temujin would conquer the world. He was also very much aware of this power. There is a very good reason for his omission from this part of the secret history, as his actions would bring Chinggis's position as leader into question, but that story will be for another episode. For the purposes of this Kyrultai, Teb Tengri is a happily working cog in Temujin's administration, and was the person to anoint him Chinggis Khan. Much like the secret history, Rashid does not provide any further detail about the social reforms carried out by Chinggis Khan, and merely states that once the Kyrultai was complete, Chinggis led his army against Buryuk Khan of the Neyman. So how do we find out what happened? Sources such as Atom Malik Juvaini's History of the World Conqueror and Gregory Bar Hebraeus's Chronicon provide second-hand reports about the laws promulgated by Chinggis Khan, but they lack context so we cannot definitively state that they were all put down during this Kyrultai. 
The best sources seem to be the secret history of the Mongols, and of course, the Wan Shi. I am once more let down by my complete ignorance of the Chinese language, so have to rely on snippets taken from various secondary sources. In this case, Paul Rachnevsky once more comes to the rescue. If I haven't mentioned it in the past, I really, really do recommend grabbing a copy of Genghis Khan, His Life and Legacy. 30 odd years since it was first published in English, it is still considered to be one of the best, if not the best, biography of the Mongol leader. So just go buy it or borrow it and just read it. It's fantastic. When we talk about Mongol society, you need to remember that in 1206 it was fundamentally a military society, with tribal leaders playing the part of statesman and general. The reforms introduced by Chinggis Khan did not bring any major changes to the situation, and we will see men who were an important part of Chinggis's army placed into administrative roles in the new Mongol bureaucracy. The main effect of the reforms seemed to have been a confirmation of the restructuring of Mongol society along the lines already established in Temujin's tribe. The Kuraltai was primarily a legal instrument, and this is important to remember, because it bound all attendees to the same laws and regulations. So with the majority of the Mongolian tribes now under his control, and old tribal divisions essentially abolished, the Kuraltai forced anyone who may have opposed Temujin's reforms to adhere to the new social order. The transfer of power then from the traditional steppe aristocracy into the hands of the Khan was now complete, and if you were not in favour with Chinggis, then your status was essentially reduced to that of the commoner. The consequences of this transfer of power may not have been as dramatic as it sounds, though. The Mongolian Wars had completely decimated the ruling families of all major tribes, and the tribesmen absorbed into Chinggis's own tribe were largely the ragged survivors or those who had allied with Temujin over the previous 20 or so years. Some elements of government reform had begun prior to 1206. For example, after defeating Taiyang Khan, Temujin introduced an official keeper of seals who worked as his assistant, affixing seals to official proclamations. Tata Tunga, a man of Uyghur origin, had held the same position in Taiyang's government, and he had suggested that Temujin required a method of proving the orders he sent to his commanders were legitimate. As part of the reforms made at the Kiraltai, Control over the Keeper of Seals was given to the men who were appointed to the newly created role of judge. These Yaguchis had the power to make legal judgments and carry out censuses, and the Yeka Yaguchi, or Great Judge, ended up having judicial power second only to the Khan. The Yaguchis were supported by administrators known as Baichechi. This position seems to have combined the role of scribe, archivist, calendar, and divination expert, and some Baichechi were attached directly to the emperor, automatically becoming members of his guard. To keep these new administrators busy, the Wanshi tells us that Chinggis implemented new laws to end robbery and blood feuds, and he formally codified Mongol common law. The Persian historian Atta Malak Juvaini wrote that Chinggis established laws and regulations for all occasions, all of which came with a penalty. Quote, Whoever presumed to oppose and resist Chinggis Khan, 
that man, in enforcement of the Yasusan ordinances, was utterly destroyed, together with all his followers, children, partisans, armies, lands, and territories. End quote. This is not to say that the death penalty was applied in all circumstances, but it does seem to have been a common punishment for breaking the law. The laws or yasus of Chinggis Khan are a fascinating subject and have stimulated a lot of academic debate, but as they do not become a prominent part of what I guess is Mongol identity until the coronation of Ogodai in 1229, we will hold off looking at them in any detail until then. For this new administration to actually function as desired, Chinggis needed to address the elephant in the room, which was Mongol illiteracy. Tatatunga made the suggestion that the nomads should learn to read and write, and Chinggis didn't disagree. Juvaini states that he gave orders for his court and all Mongol children to learn Uyghur script, which was adapted to the Mongol language. The imperial family was not exempt from this decree, and whilst he himself did not learn to read, Chinggis made sure his children did. Whilst those seem to be the main known administrative changes made by Chinggis at this Kirultai, the military reforms were far more extensive. Something that I've emphasised over and over is that the power structure within Chinggis's own tribe broke from the traditional hierarchy of nomadic society. The hereditary rights of established tribal leaders were overridden to put their power into Temujin's own hands and those of his most loyal followers. One consequence of this shift was that there was now a need to divide the nation in a way that would establish a singular tribal identity, where loyalty was to the new Mongol nation and imperial family. The secret history tells us that Chinggis divided the nation into units of a thousand households, of which there were 95. Each unit of a thousand men then reported to a leader of 10,000, who then reported directly to Chinggis. Within these thousands, the nation was divided up further. Captains were appointed to lead groups of 100, and again for groups of 10, and no man was allowed to leave their unit on pain of death. Families were an integral part of the New Look army, having the responsibility of provisioning their men with equipment. And just to emphasise the martial nature of Mongol society, conscription was introduced for all men between the ages of 15 and 70. Each thousand was led by a commander, known as the Mingan Unoyan, men who were selected by Chinggis on the basis of exceptional service or for having unwavering loyalty. In all, the secret history lists 87 men who were elevated to this position, and they represented a real cross-section of Mongol society. Chinggis honoured men who were established tribal leaders, men such as Botu Butu of the Akiris and Jurchidai of the Urugud, who were allowed to keep their people together. But a large number of the Minganu Noyan were commoners. Chinggis honoured those who had been with him from the beginning, such as Bogochu and Jelme. There were those who had fought for Chinggis over the years, including at Kalakaljid, men such as Borogul. There were the men who had shared the muddy waters of the Baljuna River. And finally, there were those men who had supported Chinggis with an alliance, which included the Ongud leader Alakush Dijikuri. According to the secret history, three men were given the honour of each leading 10,000 men. The 10,000 who made up the right wing of the army was given to Chinggis's longtime liegeman Bogochu, whilst control of the 10,000 on the left was given to Mukali. We saw 
a long time back how Bogotu joined Temujin. So we don't really need to address that again. So we'll just have a little bit of background on Mukali. The secret history tells us that Mukali came to Chinggis early in his career with a clear message from heaven, although this message was not so clear as to have been written down by the author. However, Chinggis was impressed enough to promise that if this prophecy came true, then Mukali would be elevated to a position above all others. The secret history also states that Chinggis gave Mukali the title Guiyong and 10,000 people in the north who lived in the Karagunchidan Mountains, a location possibly in the vicinity of Lake Baikal. Whilst the fact that he was given command of the left is indisputable, that he was titled Guiyong in 1206 is demonstrably wrong. Rashid states that this title was not bestowed upon Mukali until 1218, when Chinggis was planning the invasion of Central Asia. The title made Mukali the senior commander in northern China, and gave him the authority to act independently in the Khan's name, at a point when the success of the conquest was far from guaranteed. Chinggis giving Mukali the title in 1218 makes sense. Giving someone power almost equivalent to his own, when his own position is not entirely secure in 1206, does not. There is also some contention over the third man named as leader of 10,000. Nagaya is said to have been given 10,000 men who would make up the centre. He is described simply as a great advisor and careful thinker. Someone who could see the potential consequences of their actions. He is not recorded as having participated in any battles prior to 1206, which he must have been, remember this is a martial society. So with this in mind, the position he is given by Rashid al-Din may make a little more sense. Rashid states that he was Mukali's Sutukasan, or Lieutenant, and I will be referring to him as Lieutenant from now on. In addition to being a Lieutenant, he was also given 3,000 troops of his own, so it suggests that he was a man of some repute. As always, there are dating issues surrounding some of this information. It is quite difficult to tell whether the section on the army in Rashid represents 1206 reforms or the state of it as it was in 1227. So I think it's likely that Nagaya was not in charge of his own 10,000, but serving as second in command to Mukali, there was a conflation of what Nagaya's roles were post-1218. It may well have been the case that Nagaya stepped into Mukali's shoes when Mukali was given overall leadership by Chinggis. And the author of the secret history really just wasn't too bothered about his fact-checking. Now finding himself surrounded by equally as powerful men, Chinggis had to make sure that none of them could become individually as powerful as himself. So he implemented a few checks and balances against this from happening. Commanders were banned from associating with each other, and some regiments were run on the basis of joint leadership. Despite the restrictions and harsh punishments brought in by Chinggis's socio-martial reforms, the benefits of the new system greatly outweighed the negatives for those involved in it. The Mingan Unoyan were essentially the new steppe elite, as their positions were hereditary. And whilst the threat of revocation did hang over holders, Many of the new leaders were given allowances for breaking the law. Bogotu, Mukali and Jelme were allowed to make nine transgressions without punishment. 
The final major reform was to Chinggis's bodyguard, his Keshig. According to the secret history, he expanded the night guard from 80 to 1,000. The archers were expanded from 400 men to 1,000. The day guard was expanded from the 1,000 led by Ogele Cherbe to 8,000. The men who made up the Keshig were selected from across the nation, with an emphasis on ability and looks, and it also helped to be a son of one of the newly selected commanders of 1,110. This was another double-edged reform, as these sons were effectively hostages to ensure the good behaviour of their family members. But the members of the Kashig were also in a position of extreme privilege. Chinggis's bodyguard were an elite unit whose members all enjoyed a superior status to the Mingan Unoyan. It was subject to extreme discipline and harsher punishments than the regular army, but had the advantage of working directly with the Khan. In addition to organising and running the Khan's camp, the bodyguard would provide advice on strategy and policy to Chinggis, and many of the men who started in the unit would become administrators for Chinggis's empire. But the most important role for the bodyguard was obviously to keep the Khan safe, and the secret history describes the rules for the Khan's camp after sundown. Quote, Once the sun has set, any person found near the palace tent will be seized by the night guard, held through the night, and questioned in the morning. When one company changes place with another, the night guard coming in will present their passes and take their place and the night guard being relieved will present their passes and leave. The night guard who lie around the outside of the tent and guard the door will cut in two any person who tries to enter the tent at night. If someone comes with an urgent message, let them present it to the night guard. They can stand to the north of the tent and announce that they have a message to present. No one may sit above the night guard's seat. No one may enter the tent without the night guard's permission. No one may walk between the night guard and the tent. No one may walk between the night guard's posts. No one may ask how many soldiers are in the night guard. The night guard will arrest any person who walks between their posts. The night guard will arrest any person who asks their numbers, and will confiscate the gelding the person rode that day, along with the person's saddle and bridle, along with the clothes the person was wearing. End quote. It goes on to state that these rules were strictly followed, and that despite being one of the Khan's most trusted commanders, Chinggis's nephew El Jigadai was arrested for trying to walk between the night guard and the tent. Whilst the reforms rewarded many of his followers with grants and land and command over groups of people, Chinggis did not forget about rewarding his family. We always need to be wary about the numbers involved when looking at these sources, and there is quite a discrepancy between Rashid and the secret history. Rashid states that 28,000 individuals were split between his family members. 16,000 went to his sons Jochi, Chagadai, Ogadai, and another son named Kolgan. The remaining 12,000 went to his brothers and mother. Chinggis's youngest brother Temuz Ochigin received the largest share, whilst the four sons of Kassar and Kachigan each received a share of 6,000 families. His mother Hogalun gained a camp of 3,000. The inclusion of Colgan suggests that these figures relate to a later point, because he would only have been a year or two old at most in 1206. As the youngest son, Tolui was expected to inherit Chinggis's own lands and people, and Rashid states that he inherited 101,000 families. 
In contrast, the secret history states that Temuj and Hogolon received a combined share equaling 10,000 households. Joshi received 9,000, Chagadai 8, and Ogadai and Tolui received 5,000. His brothers Kassar, Kachigun, and Belgatai received 4,000, 2,000, and 1,500 households respectively. In addition to these households, the Wanshi reports that Belgatai was appointed Minister of State and Supreme Yaguchi, making him the most senior judge in the nation. The division of the Mongol population between the family did not go without some complaint. Hogolon is said to have quietly grumbled about the size of rewards handed out to the family, believing them to be too small. However, it was Shigi Kutuku, an adopted son of Chinggis, who openly voiced his frustrations. He had originally been named Mingan Unoyan, along with Chinggis's other loyal followers, but he felt he was owed more. Quote, I haven't served less than any other man. I haven't been less devoted. I've grown up in your tent since I was in my cradle. Now this much beard grows on my chin, and all that time I've thought of no one but you. End quote. Chinggis was not insensitive to his complaints and stated he would receive the same shares due to other members of the family, which included the authority to break the law nine times without punishment. He then made Shigi Kutuku Yeka Yaguchi Grand Judge, instructing him to strike fear into the hearts of thieves and liars. Working alongside Chinggis, Shigi Kutuku would be responsible for developing the Mongol legal system, with all past judgments to be recorded in the Koka Depta, the Blue Book. Shigi Kutuku accepted the position of Yeka Yaguchi, but refused to be rewarded with the same honours as Chinggis's blood-related family. Instead, he asked to be allowed to have his pick of any spoils taken from earthen-walled cities. Shigi Kutuku is not someone I have really introduced into the narrative, because he does not play an obvious role in Chinggis's rise to power. However, I will be rectifying that with the additional episode on the Imperial Family, where we shall look in more depth at his history. We saw in episode 4.1 that the Kirotai was not just an opportunity to carry out the affairs of state, but also a chance to celebrate, and Chinggis used this Kirotai to reward all of the men who had been instrumental to his success. Gifts came in a multitude of forms, Men who had offered sage advice found themselves as counsellors to Chinggis or his sons. Others who had offered prophecies of Temujin's success were given their choice of wives and grants of land. The secret history tells us that Jerchadai of the Urugud received Chinggis's wife Ibaka Beki as a reward for killing Jaka Gambu, Chinggis's former Anda, the brother of Onkan, and the father of said Ibaka Beki. Again, the size of the rewards did not depend on the status of the man, but on the service rendered to the Khan. Sorkan Shira, the man who had freed a young Temujin from Taichigu captivity all those years ago, was asked to name whatever he wanted, and Chinggis would grant him it. In the end, all that Sorkan Shira required was the freedom to camp in Merkit territory on the Selenge River. Chinggis decreed that Sorkanshira could do so, and also that all of his descendants were now freemen, and able to serve as cupbearers and quiverholders. Sorkanshira was given the privilege of being able to break the law nine times without punishment. Chinggis also gave Sorkanshira's sons the privilege of being able to gain direct access to himself for whatever reason they needed. The final mention should belong to Chinggis's uncle Daratai. 
Having returned to Temujin's camp in 1203, Daratai must have been a constant reminder of the treasonous actions of Chinggis' extended family. But the Kirultai was the first time he was able to hand out any punishment. Initially, Chinggis handed out his sentence of death to his uncle, but with the intervention of Bogochu, Mukali, and the new Yeka Yaguchi, Shigikutuku, they persuaded the Khan to let Daratai and his family continue to live, invoking the memory of Chinggis' own father to appease their Khan's anger. I hope that these two episodes have given you a better understanding of what a Kirultai was and the types of decisions that were made in them. The one of 1206 is reasonably unique in that it seems to have provided the foundations for the Mongol nation going forward, which just happened to coincide with the complete reform of Mongol society. If you take anything away from these two episodes, it should be that the reforms made by Chinggis essentially turned the whole of Mongol society into a giant war machine. Individual units were self-supplying and rigid discipline was enforced at all levels. Yet despite this, the nature of promotion within the setup meant that the Mongol army was full of creativity, something that greatly benefited the machine as it was to move out of the steppe. So next episode, we return to the narrative. Chinggis is going to find that being Khan can be a difficult thing to hold on to, and the Mongol war machine begins to focus on targets beyond its traditional homeland. As always, mongolempirepodcast.com has all of the sources, family trees, maps and biographies to help fill in some of the gaps. If you want to give me any feedback, complain about anything I've said, or just say hi, you can contact me by email, that's Cory. C-O-R-E-Y at mongolempirepodcast.com or I have a very vague presence on Twitter which is at mongolempirepod. Until next time though, which should hopefully be in a month, take care and thank you for listening.